welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Note Doctors. For today's episode, we are interviewing Charlotte Buetta. Jen, tell us a little bit about Charlotte. Sure. Charlotte is the Director of Choral Activities at Hamilton College in Clinton, New York, where she conducts the College Choir and the Hamilton Voices Ensembles. She teaches music theory and social justice musicology. During her choral conducting DMA at the University of North Texas, she served as conductor of the Women's Chorus, assistant conductor of the University Singers, and assistant conductor of the Dallas Symphony Chorus. Charlotte's tenure as conductor of the Drakensberg Boys Choir solidified her passion for making music with and composing for young singers. She has performed and presented workshops around the globe, most notably as a member of the World Youth Choir alumni group Time Ensemble. Her research interests include phonetics, choral text painting, and equitable practices for including the music of and by marginalized members of the music community and choral programs. Charlotte's Master's of Music is from Nelson Mandela University, and her Bachelor's of Music is from the University of Pretoria. We had a great chat with Charlotte. She has taught theory and oral skills. She's a choir director, a wonderful singer, and just kind of a jack of all trades. And uh, it was a really wonderful discussion that we had. So here we go. If you say, this is a major third, or this is a major third, right? If you add some kind of joke, if you use your instrument in such a way that um, they are still a musician, even though this is not their instrument, right? So they're they're expressing, <laughs> they're expressing the the music because they know how to be a musician. Um, but to take it away from now, I'm going to sing very beautifully, la la, right? We're we're taking that away and we're just kind of shouting at each other and making sounds because we all have that inside of us. And we just need to, yeah. I think that emotion is is very important. So today our very special guest is Charlotte Buetta. How was that? Was that pretty good? That's All right, pretty excellent. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and so we are so pleased to have you on our podcast uh, for today. And we always like to ask our uh, guests at the beginning just a little bit about their background and a little bit how you got into music and specifically, you know, what made you decide to pursue conducting? You know, was it just a thirst for unlimited power that one gets when standing on the podium in front of an ensemble or was it something something less than that yeah not just dictatorship it's a it's a pretty long story I, i'll try to tell it quite concisely i have many interests and it's actually just it's a big old joke that i landed in music so here's how it happened i grew up about two hours south of johannesburg in a kind of rural mining town called Klerksdorp. Um, I took piano lessons from a very young age. At some stage, um, clarinet entered my life, but it left very quickly, thankfully. I'm not a big fan of the clarinet. We hate each other. It's, it's, <laughs> there's just no love. 
Um, and <laughs> so a lot of piano playing. Um, when I was about 12, I started playing percussion. So this clarinet led me to the youth wind ensemble of the area. And then I was like, thank you. Could I please play the other thing? So I started taking percussion <laughs> lessons. And round about the time that I entered into high school, I'd say, I started taking singing pretty seriously. So up until then, I'd been singing in um, the school choir and provincial children's choir, provincial youth choir. And then I started taking lessons um, with one of the professors at a, at a university close by, at the University of Potchefstroom, now Northwest University. So um, singing, singing, singing. Um, and somewhere along the lines, I joined the National Youth Choir. Now, it's a cool concept. A cool concept. What basically happens is um, during the your summer, our winter break is the longer break um, in June and July. People from all around go to the Drakensberg Boys Choir campus when they're not on campus. And so we are people from everywhere singing together. And I just fell in love with this place, with the idea of singing choir for a living, you know, doing this every day. And that's where the seed was planted. I finished high school. I did my undergrad in vocal performance at the University of Pretoria. I chose Pretoria because they had the best choir. Johan van der Schant was the conductor, and I, I dabbled in journalism and art and a little bit of science, but eventually music pulled me in. Uh, you can't escape it, you know, if you're destined to do this. And um, so it was the choir that pulled me in. Uh, about halfway through, I got a vocal injury. This is common among vocalists, right? Where are we, the people who yeah. get these vocal injuries? Yep. And um, I think I couldn't stop singing, but because I couldn't sing, conducting was the solution. And uh, by the end of my undergrad, I had switched to performance and conducting and percussion, um, and then with musicology as my second field. Um, and as soon as I graduated, I was just thinking about this again. It was like an explosion. I got a job teaching oral skills at my university. This was my first <laughs> job. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a pretty intense gig. Um, and a children's choir straight away. Then I became the assistant conductor of the chamber choir that I'd started singing in there. Um, and then I got a high school mixed choir and my favorite choir, which was the veterinary campus choir. This all happened like within two years. It was just like this opportunity, this opportunity. And I'm young and I'm not, I can't feel that I'm tired yet. So I just say, yes, 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 yes. Um, and um, around about then 2010, I also started singing in the World Youth Choir, which was just the most fantastic and beautiful projects about 80 people from all around the world meeting for a summer and touring together in some some area of the world um, and singing, you know, the type of music that's too difficult to sing at home. But if you put all the <laughs> all the music theory junkies together <laughs> in one room, they can pull it off. Um, yeah. And um, at one stage, I had to just take a step back when I was starting teaching oral training at 7.30 in the morning and finishing my last rehearsal at 10 p.m. at night. I was like, oh, I don't think I can continue doing this, but I just have to do this. So what do I do? I'm going to have to do this all in one place because the driving from one side of the city to the other in, in Pretoria was just getting to me. So I applied for the job at the Drakensberg Boys Choir, which is, you know, where the seed had been planted the first time, which is a choir school, a boarding school. You have 120 students. That is a finite number. These are the people you have to care for and, you know, teach them. Um, and you spend all of your time teaching oral training and music theory. I taught um, voice and percussion also. And 
yeah, it um, is heaven. It is the best job in the whole world. I just, if you tell me I can go back tomorrow, I'll just go again. Um, it's a really intense audition process. I think at one stage I was doing 1,500 auditions a year to find the right boys to come to the school. And um, yeah, I had a fantastic time. It's a sort of professional choir. It's very well known around the world. So we toured internationally and locally and <laughs> we just went nuts um, and uh, had a fantastic time. And eventually the one thing that was missing was because in South Africa, there's a big emphasis on a cappella singing. Um, and we don't have so many orchestras. Um, so it means that there are some, some sections of the repertoire that aren't performed so frequently. And I felt like I was missing out on choral orchestral repertoire in general. I, I really know a cappella music so well, but if you ask me, what is this tune, you know, from, from which oratorio is it? I probably couldn't answer it. And I thought, well, that's not great if I want to be a serious conductor. So I, su I, I, I looked for a place um, that had a kind of traditional, um, a traditional approach, but also lots of opportunities. I considered Europe and eventually landed in Texas. Um, <laughs> at the University of North Texas um, and for a brief time there I, I was the assistant chorus conductor of um, the Dallas Symphony Chorus, that's where I met Jen um, <laughs> and Ben was just around the corner in the theory department um, yeah and at the end of, of that wonderful journey I uh, happened to marry a Texan and um, then thought, okay, well, then I'll apply for a job in America. I think it's okay. And here I am in central New York, almost touching Canada at the top. Um, as the freezing. Director, <laughs> it's freezing. It's <laughs> freezing. It's so cold. Um, I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, like, I, I have no idea how snow works. I keep messing it up completely. I'm like, surely this isn't too bad. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. And so here we are. Um, small liberal arts school, really gifted students. And, and I'm here for let's see how long. <laughs> yeah, well, that's amazing. That's, that's how I got right here. <laughs> we'll see what happens next. <laughs> I loved uh, singing with you conducting. I learned so much from you, both about singing and musicianship, but also just the way you ran a rehearsal. Um, mm -hmm. You're in charge, but it's also very um, collegial between mm -hmm. you and the singers. And I just loved how you ran rehearsals. Um, I loved working with you in the symphony chorus. So you've taught your training in South Africa. Yep. Um, in fact, so the people who have listened to this podcast, I've actually mentioned you before because I mentioned that I had a friend from South Africa who asked me why theorists are the one who teach oral skills here and not choir yeah. directors. Yeah. Um, and so can you tell us, are there big differences between how we approach <sighs> ear training in the U.S. and South Africa? Is it similar? Is it totally, totally yeah. different? Yeah, it's. I'm thinking about, you know, that, that little surprise job I got teaching oral training when my mentor <laughs> retired um, at the University of Pretoria and how I just did what she was doing, which is what they'd been doing all throughout the olden days of apartheid, you know, like very strict <laughs> Dutch and German um, soulfish training. Very, very strict. Um, almost never attached to actual music. Just mm. um, uh, really focused on the conceptual idea of these are the intervals and these are the chords. 
Um, and that's one big strength in American teaching, I'd say, in, in the oral trainings um, mm. curricula that I've seen, is that you start with music very often, or you say, what do you hear? Let's figure out what that is. Um, so uh, my experience of um, music theory is different in that if you want to play an instrument, take singing, you go through these um, levels of examinations. Um, some people in South Africa use the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music mm -hmm. um, levels, um, but the, the cruel and old school one that I did is the University of South Africa, which is really intense repertoire and an extremely intense theory curriculum. So the thing is, if you do grade one um, piano, you have to do grade one theory as well. If you want to do grade five, in order to get your certificate for the practical examination, you have to complete the theory exam as well. So by the time that you get to university, you can write four-part harmony, you understand music theory up until about some like secondary dominance, I'd say, is where 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 you end up. Um, and that's and then it has there's a disconnect between this theory and your actual practice because there's the assumption that there is a connection somewhere there. But very often you'll have a theory teacher for the one and a, and a practical teacher for the other one. They don't really talk to each other necessarily. <laughs> so we end up that, well, it's mostly um, the University of South Africa curriculum is popular throughout South Africa, but it's mostly Afrikaans kids, like the very conservative yeah. folks of my culture that end up taking um, these UNISA uh, very very stringent examinations and we are robots we we can analyze anything in a minute we are like so <laughs> but i keep asking myself whether there's joy in that i think that's more mm. like dopamine i think we, we find <laughs> joy in being successful and analyzing it perfectly maybe it's that mm. um so Oral training is something that's part of the practical examinations. It's like a little add-on at the end. So you practice your pieces, scales, da-da-da-da-da. And at the end, they'll be like, what is this chord? Ding, ding, ding. And you say, oh, that's a major chord. And that's a little part of the examination. And then when you get to university, you're like, oh, heck, I'm actually supposed to be able to sight read. Um, so then we do a lot of solfege. Now, I'm sure that that has changed um, mm. <laughs> since I left university. There are new lecturers coming in doing exciting things. Uh, I'm inspired by a lot of them. Um, but the theory and the oral training divide is huge. It's kind of seen, mm. theory is seen as this cerebral thing, uh, almost removed from music making, I'd say. And that's one of the weaknesses in the South African system. But the strength is, I know exactly what tendency tone is in every key, and I can mention each one of them by the time I'm 14, you know, like, because I'm scared. If I get it wrong, I'll be in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is what wow. is very different. The other thing, Jen, is that we have the tonic solfa system as a learning method, right? So, so mm. many of, especially the... Um, uh, the, uh, the black cultures, like the Zulu uh, people and, and uh, like Twanas and Sutus and whatever, um, many of these people in church, in services that are in these languages, um, everyone's reading tonic solfa. So th th these dots, dots mm. and dashes that pretty much indicate to you four-part writing and you're killing it. <laughs> I mean, it can be very intricate right. and really amazing. Yeah. Right. I would say, I mean, I grew up in a sort of kind of traditional Protestant, uh, we did lots of 
four part singing at church. Mm-hmm. And I learned kind of next to my mom how to make up an alto line and all of right. that. And when you have that, those instincts already in place, it is so much easier to figure a lot of those things yeah. out, uh, yeah. what they are, what the, you know, that, that the seventh of a chord always resolves down all of those yeah, yeah. kinds of things become sort of intuitive. Yeah. One thing that stuck out to me, Charlotte, about the way you described your experience, um, as this kind of theory as the robotic. I really found that interesting. I've challenged myself a ton in the past, I would say, two to three years to allow the students this like space to fail and I guess challenge like what the quote unquote theoretical models, you know, or Mm -hmm. the, the, I guess, I don't know how to say it, but those like theoretical abstractions and like fail and like therefore like be at the cutting edge all the time. And like, that's where the robotic, I guess, and the artistic kind of like come together or like, I'm trying to get them so much to be outside of the robotic side. But then like people are, like you say, they're so comfortable in it because like, okay, I know how to do this thing and and I'm good at it now. And and that's cool. You know, and I make my A, but then it's like, then you're losing like this whole artistic side of like failure and experimentation and like trying new things, you know? And I just find that really interesting how you even described it as like, like theory is like more robotic because that's exactly like, yeah. I think the way a lot of people, unfortunately, um, think about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have, I have been to your classes, Ben, and I know that you have them sing and, you know, like, yes, you sound like you're okay. You know, like everyone is experimenting the whole time. I, I, I you teach massive classes. It's very impressive what you do. He's a whole classroom of robots. <laughs> 150 of them, yes. Couple hundred of them. They sound really good when you get them all singing, though. That's why I really yeah. enjoy doing it, you know? Yeah. Man, I miss that. I cannot wait. For, uh, for, you know, I've said many times, I think twice today in jazz theory, I said, well, you know, if this was last year or if this was fall of 19, I would have made you sing the bass line to rhythm changes while we listen to anthropology, you know, but we can't (laughs) do that today. So it's just, yeah, I can't wait to have singing back in class again. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I um, So, I mean, we're not allowed to sing in the lectural halls here, and I'm, I'm very happy that I get to teach a little bit of music theory. Also, I'm doing the music for non-majors, and we have the Hamilton College Spirit Fingers Ensemble. We can clap anything. <laughs> we just, whenever there's an opportunity, I'm like, I know we're not doing rhythm, but could you please clap these chords for me? <laughs> we, just, <laughs> we just use our bodies all the time. Because <laughs> we're not allowed to sing because it's so dangerous. Oh. Yeah. What a trick. Yeah. It's a hard time to be a singer this cool. last year. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So kind of speaking of singing, I thought maybe we could talk about some strategies that um, maybe you have for helping, helping students sing, because that's oftentimes a challenge. We have these students come in and maybe us as a professor, we're not singers, I'm a pianist or a percussionist, or something like that. So the voice might not be the strongest thing for us. But the biggest thing is we get trombonists or a flautist that hasn't sung since fourth grade. And they come and they sing for you and they have trouble even matching pitch or they sing too low, sing too high. And getting them to use, you know, understand how their voice works. And I think as someone who is a trained singer and a choir director, you probably have tips and tricks and things that us as theorists we don't 
have that that knowledge that you know maybe would help us to kind of uh, help these students learn how to use their voice better yeah thank you for asking that question I I think one thing that comes up is if you're if you're a born vocalist, you know, if, or if your first experience with music was vocal and you've kind of internalized the process of music making and your body is your instrument, <laughs> you think about it a little bit differently. And I think I actually wonder about wind players and whether it's true of them as well. But I, I am so dependent on the quality of the breath I take before I sing and the moment of the breath and I, I almost uh, want to think about it as choreographing the breath over the metric landscape saying like how big a breath am I going to take in this moment before it happens because once you've taken that breath and once you start phonating there's no fixing the sound like people who phonate and they then say okay now spin the sound like that spinning needs to happen in your attack already in order for that intonation to get there and I think we sometimes underestimate how big a role emotion plays in the sound that we're making. I mean, mm. I don't know if you've ever experienced a rehearsal where someone has insulted the sopranos and then tries to continue with the rehearsal mm. in sounds pitch. Like, that sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> there's just, there's, I don't think I could even sing in tune as a sopr like I can, and I'm cheerleader for all sorts of music, you know, but if someone says, you know, if someone accidentally says the wrong thing for me at the wrong time or says, um, something like, or makes me oversing, you know, say, no, go again, no, go again, without giving you instructions for why, and you start feeling tiny and whatever. <laughs> I think then you can't sing in pitch anymore. You just can't sing in tune, and you don't want to. And so I think emotion is huge. If you deliver that, I mean, so it's a combination of artistry and emotion, I'd say. If you say, this is a major third, or this is a major third, right? If you add some kind of joke, if you use your instrument in such a way that um, they are still a musician, even though this is not their instrument, right? So they're mm -hmm. they're expressing, <laughs> they're expressing the the music because they know how to be a musician. Um, but to take it away from now, I'm going to sing very beautifully, la la, right? We're we're taking that away, and we're just kind of shouting at each other and making sounds because we all have that inside of us, and we just need to. Yeah, I think that emotion is is very important. So there's the breath, and then um, if it's not a wind player, right? If it's a if it's a keyboard player, this is sometimes a bit of an issue. I was um, mm -hmm. looking on on Wednesday night. Um, one of our section leaders wasn't there, and so one of the very um, talented first-year students was cueing everyone in their group, saying, okay, we'll sing now, sing now, sing now. We don't need to know sing now. We need to know <gasps> now. We need to know breathe now. So the breath needs to be choreographed into the experience as well. Yep. I think that's so great. The breath mm -hmm. and the... Uh, the emotion or uh, because that's addressing two things that you know you listen to someone sing do re mi and you're like what instrument do you play the tuba 
So you can use that much breath to sound good on the tuba? <laughs> like, if you did that on a tuba, <laughs> no. you'd get no sound, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, yeah. oh. Wait. And, like, so give me the sound that you would need to sound good on a tuba. And that right. is addressing their voice, right? And then yeah. the other piece is that confidence piece. These oh, students yeah. are so insecure with their voice. Mm-hmm. They can sound great on their saxophone or, you know, on a marimba. But, you know, I love that. Just, like, you know, sing out, have that emotion, sound, be, have fun with it. And that's going to change their confidence level uh, immensely. Yeah. And don't ask them to sing beautifully. Don't ask them to sing in tune. Mm. Say, okay, sing that like a witch. Like take away the musician part of it. You know, just get the, get the voice going, get the sound flowing. Mm. Oh, I love that idea because oftentimes they are very concerned about how they sound um, which is a good instinct for a musician to have. But in oral skills, what we're looking for is the ability to demonstrate that you understand right notes, right rhythms, mm-hmm. and that you can do it in a in a steady tempo, right? Yeah. And so if you're over-focused on how you sound, you're likely to make errors in the thing that we're actually looking for. So I love that yeah. idea of being like, everybody sing it like a dog, you know? I, I, <laughs> let's I sound often... terrible, but let's do it correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I often say to, like, if the let's say one of my voice groups has a has a difficult run i'll say okay well now sing it in the voice of your grandmother uh and just so that they're you know we have meaningful repetition they're thinking about something else and you're programming the the actual information into a different part of the brain yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah that's so good so you know you do lots of error detection that's kind of your job as a choir director, at least some of it is, you know, a big part of it in the early stages of rehearsing a piece would be error detection. And that's something that it's actually an NASM standard. We're supposed to be teaching it in oral skills classes, but it's something I've found that's really hard to do. Um, I do, I always give my students the opportunity to, um, they have kind of like a, a wrong melody on their page and I play the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, in so I've thought many times that I need, we need to also be going the other direction where they have the right one and I play the wrong one. Um, we're really only going one way, the way that we do it right now and the way our book is designed right now. But, you know, I do give them, they tonicize and I give them the opportunity to kind of sing what's on the page. But immediately, every time I do that, you can see the students who have already really developed their skills because right away they start circling things that they're like, this is going to be wrong. Mm. It sounds terrible, right? They've already got a sense of where all the spots are. And then the students who struggle are kind of correcting those spots internally without even knowing that they're doing it because they're, they're looking at it. Ah. Yeah. They have the wrong one. And so they're looking at it and they're Ah. thinking like, you know, like, well, it should go to so there. So in their head, they sing so even if it's fa on the page or whatever, you know. I've so I have found that. error detection. Yeah, I found error detection to be something that's particularly hard to teach. And it's something you do every day. So do you have any hints yeah. for us? Any oh tips? Well, I'd say that um, the challenge for me um, it has more to do with listening to multiple parts at a time and oh, error yeah. detection in multiple parts at a time. So if I, I, I didn't really think about it <laughs> in one line. Something something that I'm finding, I'm just going to keep reinforcing, is we in the kind of Western world, um, 
almost yeah we we say there's music and then there's dance and i think that they are mm. the same thing actually and we should have our students dancing the rhythms with their feet and we should have the mm. students uh keeping a steady pulse with their feet and snapping with the other hand and just getting those those limbs um uh, go, those limbs coordinated so that I'm talking about rhythm now but to know when something is happening with the beat and when it's not happening with the beat because there is only one place for the beat to be that is where I'm putting my weight right now um, as for as for pitch I, I think y yeah you're hitting on a very on a very difficult thing there but, but I also wonder whether sometimes our error detection exercises are realistic you know mm -hmm. <laughs> whether they are the the type of uh, errors that people will make um yeah what what choral directors are most skilled at in terms of error detection and this takes a very long time and you get yeah. better and better and i think there's a reason why we have to start with a choir that sings mostly in two part then a choir that sings mostly in three part <laughs> you know that evolution is very healthy for the ears um, what I've found the hardest thing, the hardest thing to hear is in a treble texture, a four part treble texture to hear what on earth the alto ones are doing. Mm -hmm. So we wonder why is that right? And it has a lot to do with the registers of the voice mm -hmm. and you always want the melody to sound really good. So you always place the soprano line in a specific spot. That means that the poor altos are always singing the fourth below and mm -hmm. always singing an F sharp and like, oh, I'm on this break. Oh, I get to sing another note that's also yep. on my break. <laughs> yep, we're languishing, uh, like right on our yes. break or yes, a note above. Yeah. So this is the this is the part that's hardest to fix because it's hardest to hear. And then of course mm -hmm. the the other the other thing that's hard is um, when you have equal voice equal voice music in the in the tenor bass voices because the lower the pitches go the closer the frequencies mm -hmm. <laughs> are interfering with one another so that i'd say if you wanted to make it more difficult hide your hide your um incorrect notes or your errors in there hide them in the alto board and hide them hide them there that's a great point maybe we should be doing like reverse ones where you actually you know I, it would take a lot of work but make some bad recordings and bury yeah. some errors <laughs> in there you know of yeah. of different instruments or choral ensembles or whatever and have the students find those yeah. errors that might be a good way to do it i think yeah. the way it's set up in our book is to help them be better at melodic dictation it's designed to help mm. them like spot their own mistakes and be able to see like oh that's not i didn't do that correctly i didn't raise the leading tone or i didn't you know whatever yeah but you're right that to be to ultimately end up, you know, as a music educator or a choir director or, you know, something like that, they need the other way around. They need the, you know, hearing the poor languishing altos, which you yeah. and I are both, are both. Like. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> um, something I think about is you can never be too prepared. Like, I, mm. I know there's this, I know that it's not a myth because I asked Rick Biela, um, who was at Texas Tech, used to say that you don't know the music unless you can close the score and rewrite it mm. and i don't know if i'm there i don't know if i could rewrite <laughs> but i certainly <laughs> aspire to be there and so if that's the first step i guess audiating all of that like really sitting with your eyes closed and asking can i hear all of this music can i hear the vertical structures while i'm really just looking at the music because mm -hmm. 
the, the problem with this melodic instrument that we have, which is our way of saying, I understand what that chord is, it's do mi so, and mm. I can only give you that information melodically, is that I'm not sure that we're always having an oral image that is harmonic. And I think if I ask the three of you to imagine a diminished chord in root position, you hear it harmonically, I'm sure. You can mm -hmm. hear it because maybe a lot of you play keyboard or whatever. But um, I, I'm wondering whether in every moment we actually do know the vertical sonority or do we, are we going back and looking at it horizontally again and figuring, figuring that out? Mm. Yeah, so my, my method would be to just add more and more vertical sonorities to that. <laughs> and make it more ho more difficult. Yep. <laughs> and then, of course, how do you know that your students are audiating what you want them to audiate? Mm. <laughs> right. I have my students audiate all the time. And, <laughs> and as, as we're audiating through Zoom, which is even more displaced, I'm like, all right, we'll audiate that melody. I will sit here and look at my gray boxes for the next 30 seconds. I hope they're I audiating. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> um, but how do you know that they're actually audiating the correct thing? So what I do to test that is that I give them an instruction. I say, sing through this melody, only vocalize when I show you something with my hand. Then not, then vocalize, then not. So that they don't know when I'm going to say it. I'm not going to say, and then we're going to sing measure five and we're going to audience measure six. I just, they have no idea. It needs to be happening in their ears. And I mean, you obviously start small, right? You start with little scales and then you start with a little bit bigger structures and then you can, you can eventually get to a piece. I wouldn't say that I'm there with my current choir, but I haven't had them for a very long time. And they just, <laughs> I think they're, they just, they have shell shock <laughs> from everything I throw at them every rehearsal. Well, I do remember one warm up in particular that you did where you made us like stamp our right foot on every time we hit law <laughs> and our left foot on every ray or something. And yeah. then we had to like wave on T or I don't remember, but I do remember yeah. that I couldn't do it and I was really bad at it. And it so, felt shocking. I normally I, don't struggle with warm-ups. <laughs> if, you, if you get, if you land yourself in a wonderful solfege environment like Texas, right, you know that these people have been singing solfege forever and you don't know how many of the exercise they've just memorized. You don't know if people are actively thinking of mm. what chord tone am I singing now, right? So this exercise that, that is it's hated by all, but everyone tries. And I don't think I can do it either, Jane. But <laughs> the idea is to try. Is basically I say, whenever you're singing a chord tone of the tonic, stamp your foot. Whenever you're singing a chord tone of the dominant seventh, snap your finger, you know, or clap whenever it's the subdominant or I, I will give. And, you know, you build it up and up and up and up. And eventually, hopefully you can do multiple ones <laughs> at the same time if you assign them smartly. Um, yeah, but it's, it's again to have repetition that activates different parts of the brain to be thinking about the harmonic structure while you're while you're singing. And actually, to come back to that idea of how do we get our singers to be better singers when they're doing oral skills, what I find is as soon as you add that extra challenge, then the singing deteriorates. Mm -hmm. so, so to make them really aware that your singing needs to still be good, no matter how hard you're trying to do these difficult things, don't forsake mm -hmm. the instrument. I love that because that is helping those solfege uh, savants that we have in texas that are like <laughs> you know sight reading is no problem I mean, they got their hand side ninjas you know they've been doing that stuff since fourth grade 
and then throwing in that kinesthetic or that physical element. So they have to think, they have to re-engage because so many of them are just like, okay, I can sight read in my sleep, right? And now you're like, oh my gosh. That was me in that Am I singing in the tonic triad? Like, I love that. It's just re-engaging for those students who might be at a a higher level. And maybe you have some students just worrying about the soul fed, but if if you got that going well, let's add this clap. Let's add this snap, yeah. Yeah, totally. Charlotte, I was going to loop back to one thing you alluded to during that, which was your kind of preparation of kind of audiating, like not only the, mm-hmm. the lines themselves, but some of the verticalities. My question, I guess, is when you when you look back on this, um, I think you described it as antiquated, but also rigorous <laughs> theory training that you had. <laughs> what are the things that you think to yourself, oh my gosh, thank goodness I had that, you know? Um, What are the things that you really find yourself drawing from, you know, in your score preparation, in your uh, leadership of your your ensembles, you know, the things that, you know, the three of us and our listeners um, can kind of focus on, you know, moving forward? Yeah, I mean, things that I know you do already. I mean, if I hadn't sung from any note from day one, I I don't think I would be where I am now. the, the other thing that's really helpful for me is working with a tuning fork. You know, that has mm. um, okay. that has just, I feel like a superhero um, when I have my tuning fork because I am the only one privileged to that sound. I'm not taking out a pitch pipe or hitting a key on the piano. I am the only one who knows whether we're singing in tune or not. Um, I am the only one who knows whether that chord is working or not. And... I sit with a tuning fork, so from day one I go, this is law, okay, I'm, it's an A, this is law, fine, can I find C, can I find D from there, can I semi do, whatever, but to then shift that focus to can I, so here's, here's where you want to land in the end, is can I, while the choir is singing, grab that A briefly without interrupting their singing, knowing exactly which part is out of tune also so to eventually get there and you get there by you know starting with single pitches starting with single keys singing chords with that but then to also something i love doing is for instance keeping that a in my ear and singing singing a melody in e flat major or plonking out uh, plonking out a c sharp the whole time while i'm singing something in c major um, to to really be conscious of the tonal center. I mean, there's m- music theory is having a reckoning at the moment, and tonal centers and tonality and such are things that we also need to address, obviously. But um, that has me- I feel like a superhero, you know, and I feel like I can at any minute stop the music and say, let's go again, use my tuning fork and sing every single note in the vertical moment. You know, I. If you, if you just keep going and going. And you know what was one of the things that helped me the most? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have anticipated this. During the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't have access to a piano for the first time. Mm. I couldn't go to campus. I couldn't touch a piano. I had to learn very tall scores. And I mean, we were still imagining that, Jen, maybe we would do that. Oh Eternal Fugel yes, from Schmidt Book of the Seven Seals. Yes. Right? And I was audiating that stuff and learning it with oh my, my tuning gosh. fork and because I had no other option right. and it made me superhero wow. I feel like I can sing anything now <laughs> I am <Yeah>. just unafraid <laughs> if you were practicing that piece without a piano yes yeah. I bow down wow. to your skills <laughs> no it was it was not a pleasant experience I'll tell you that 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I don't even know if that answers your question, man, but I I really do think that the tuning fork it never leaves my side and I it is part of how I ask questions about music. It's always in my handbag. And what's funny is back in the days when I used to travel a lot, when we all used to travel a lot, depending on the level of music literacy in the country, they would either stop me at the airport if I have the tuning fork or tell me to just go. And I remember (laughs) coming back from a conference in Estonia and being ready to defend myself. No, this is a musical tool that I need in my handbag. It's not a weapon. And then the woman took it out and she said, is it an A or a C? (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty great. So I'm very curious. You teach at a liberal arts, like a true liberal Mm. arts university where they have an open curriculum. I'm so curious. What does that look like? Um, What are the upsides? Right. So I, I mean, I come from uh, this very almost conservatory style college of music background, right, where we are very focused on music and maybe we take some other things and we call them extracurricular, right? They are (laughs) side issues for us. We keep our eyes on the prize. So this has been a real, this has been a bit of a shocker for me, right? To to really try and find the value in, or like to try and think how, how do I make these concepts that are so important to me because they are my job important Mm. to people whose job it isn't, you know, who, who are interested in politics or who are interested in history. Um, and I've, I've had to go back to what sparks joy for me in music to say, okay, do you hear that? And let me tell you why this is cool. And then to kind of trick them into learning, okay, well, that's what this chord is all about. Da, 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 da. Um, the cool thing about Hamilton College and this open curriculum is that I, I was wondering whether that might have been a better choice for me because I dabbled in journalism mm. and art and sciences and whatever before I before I got sucked into music. <laughs> but um, I think w- as an advisor, I am encouraged to discourage focus in one field. So if my advisee wow. says, you know, I think music and math is the right thing for me. That might be true, but have you tried Arabic? And only once you have, you'll know that you don't like it. So let's see how we can take this thing that looks like a very good idea to me on paper Mm -hmm. and say, okay, well, why don't you take a history of modern dance or whatever with that? Um, And the great thing about teaching here is, uh, I will say that the students are exceptionally bright, that that we have a a really small... um, admissions uh, percentage it's a it's an incredibly gifted group of people so they're very curious and they keep you on your toes the whole time and they they draw the passion out of you you know where i'm mm. i'm so used to drilling okay now we're gonna drill what are all of these types of chords say the letter names that's not the type of education that these kids want they want to know why is this cool why is it interesting and um mm. there's um, a lot of emphasis on interdisciplinary work if you can find a way to create a course with someone from another department that is a big win if you can get a um, a student to do an interdisciplinary dissertation or well thesis at the end of their senior year you've won then you've you've done the right thing for Hamilton and the other thing that's great is that they don't just focus on academics um, on an interdisciplinary level it's also experiences so Hmm. they'll say well I know you've been studying very hard and you have A's for all of these things but have you joined the swimming team yet or 
have you tried figure skating? And maybe that's going to make you think about the, this geometry project that you're doing differently. Um, so it's a, it's a very cool environment. Um, it's weird for me not to be somewhere where we almost feel like it's a competitive music department that you want to be on top of your game. The more important thing is, is everyone enjoying this right now? Are we learning something that we didn't know at the beginning of the rehearsal? Hmm. Yeah. I was perusing through your, uh, the, the courses that you're offering on the, on your website and actually pulled it up again. And some of these are like, I want to take, like, I want to take right. performance ritual and technology. <laughs> That's <laughs> my yeah. colleague. She teaches that from an airstream in Ithaca. Wow. She's an incredible person. <laughs> and uh, there's other ones that art, the art of active listening, black yeah. voices in song. And then this one, I think, has the longest title. So well done. Social justice, <laughs> activism and artistry in group singing, colon, exploring identity and meaning in choral music. That sounds like an amazing hey, class, but it that's does. like you've, you're weaving in. I yeah. mean, just as you talked about this interdisciplinary approach, yeah. you know, and I think with choral music, especially that's one of the big, um, big things in choir music is this realization that we can be as a choir, as singers, voices for social justice and a choir can be an activist uh, in, in our society. Yeah, Definitely. absolutely. Um, because we have the privilege of being on stage as a group of people with text. We and everyone sitting there has to shut up and listen to us. <laughs> we have to use that privilege. <laughs> so true. And it's something that brings really like broad groups of people together. I think about that a lot of times at Symphony Chorus because yes. there are people of all ages there. Yeah all races, all religions, all political viewpoints, all, I mean, we're all in that room together and we all have the same mission for several hours a week, every Monday night. Trying and that's, not, to, not to miss the next upbeat. That's all yeah. we do. We're like, oh, yeah. let's just not sing this long note too long again. Oh, yeah. again. <laughs> and it's pretty magical, really. It's yeah. pretty magical and it's a pretty Isn't powerful thing to do. Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about how how the most varied views I see on Facebook, right? Because we can get so siloed mm -hmm. in, our, in our social media. The most mm -hmm. varied views I see are from those members of the Dallas Symphony mm -hmm. Chorus, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I appreciate it so much. And that's, you know, they are also my community. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, we have just loved our time chatting with Charlotte. <laughs> this has been so fantastic. Um, but we want to end uh, just with some... Uh, short questions some off the cuff i can't remember what we call it uh what do we call it, is it like lightning round lightning rapid round fire. yes is, yeah uh, rapid fire rapid fire. it's the end of the rapid semester fire. i can't even think anymore like what are we doing <laughs> what is uh, what do we do yeah <laughs> it's are you gonna ask me to spell to spell diminished chords for you okay i'm ready <laughs> <laughs> But Ben, do you, you were writing something down. Oh, do you have something I do there? actually. Okay, why don't you go first? My question is, what is the most important oral skill? Um, oh man, yeah, I told you I come from a robot background, so now I have to, I have to figure it all out, and I have to tell you exactly <laughs> the very most important one. Um, oh, I am, I am thinking, hmm, finding dough. Knowing where dough is until until mm. we sing much more music that isn't rooted in tonal harmony. Knowing where yeah. dough is at all times, having an eye on dough in your peripheral ear vision. Yeah, cool. That's good. That's good. Paul, do you want to go? I have one, but okay, you, you can go, go, Jen. Okay. So, favorite 
coral warm up to prepare the breath. Domi re fa mi so fa la. Diatonic <laughs> thirds, um, singing them in canons, singing them in canons in seconds against one another, singing them upside down, having one group start on me and another one on do at the top and coming down. Favorite one. And then when they least expect it and they've memorized it, change it to do fa re so. Change it to fourth. It's going to kill them. <laughs> All right. Um, so mine is, what do you what um, what recommendation do you have for the beginning freshman student coming in to study music, specifically uh, in light of being successful in oral skills, sightseeing? What what is the um, what do you think is the best uh, thing to tell them to pre to be prepared? Well. Of the students I taught in oral training in that first gig I had at the University of Pretoria, who are now musicians, the ones that that have stayed musicians and been great musicians said the following was helpful to them. Be great at every aspect of being a musician. Even when you think, I am absolutely nailing this uh, singer's format right now, there's an opportunity for you to be a better dancer. Um, if you mm. think, okay, well, right now I'm killing it at sight reading, there's an opportunity for you to be better at audiating multiple levels. Just try and just try and outdo like all of the people that you admire across the field. Like, mm -hmm. just go for it and go to jazz concerts, go to the African music um, exhibit, go to everything and just try and just try and see how far can I push myself? Because we can we can also be siloed within music mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, we, like, I am yep. super good at playing exactly this thing every time and I get hired every time. Well, become as f much of a full rounded musician as you can. That is fantastic. Fantastic advice. Yep. So tell us, as we're wrapping up, a little bit about what projects you have. You know, you just finished your doctorate not too long ago. So, but of course, you have many other things you're, uh, you're working on, I'm sure. Um, so well. any type of projects you're working on? And then how can people find you uh, if they want to learn more about your work and what you're up to? Well, I, I will say that if this podcast comes out about a month or so from now that yes I will have finished my doctorate so um, <laughs> hopefully that will be a little bit more true um, but I um, yeah I I have this idea brewing at the moment about happy hormones and choral singing and I'm starting to research um, you know, how does dopamine work? How does serotonin work? And how does oxytocin work? And how can you in the, how can you in, as part of the rehearsal see which one is the best one for this moment? Because the choir that laughs together is the choir that sings best together. Mm. Um, and I, so that's the new journey that I'll take. At the moment, I'm writing about pitch collections in Jacomanti Arvi. Um, I'd like to take a step away from that and write about something completely different for a little while and research that. Um, if anyone would like to reach me, I am uh, on Hamilton College's website or they can reach me at cbota, C-B-O-T-H-A at uh, hamilton.edu. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.